Good morning. Good morning. Glad you're here. I'm gonna. We're we're starting a new book of the Torah, and it's uh it's it's sort of an exciting time because it's uh it's it's the book of Shmos, uh, also translated as as Exodus, which is actually not a translation. Interestingly enough, um, it's a completely different name for the book in the in the English. You don't always see that. Uh, Breshis sort of means in the beginning, so Genesis kind of means the beginning of something, the, genes- the genesis of a process. So it's interesting here that, the, <clears throat> that uh, the Torah name for this book and the English name are completely divergent. Maybe we'll uh, touch on that for a moment. We call this the book of names, and it chronicles uh, our enslavement in Egypt and then our redemption from Egypt. Um, so uh, we'll touch on that also. I also want to talk about what the, the nature of, of personal deliverance is uh, in our lives. And, uh, and a fairly, I think, radical idea from uh, Reb Sadek on, on the notion of salvation. And um, when it comes and, and if it comes. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that too, God willing. So I want to begin right at the beginning of the Parsha with the very first word of the Parsha, the very first letter, actually, the Parsha begins, Ve'ele, and um, there's a lot on this first letter, Vav, uh, and I, I saw some new things. Um, so this letter, Vav, you know, Vav means and, and it connects two things. So I saw in the name of the Mayor of Shemesh, um, something very, very interesting. He asks the question, what is this Vav going on? So again, Vav in Hebrew means and. It's meant to link two things. So we're right at the beginning of the book of, of our enslavement in Egypt and also simultaneously our, our redemption from Egypt. Why are we starting with the word and? It means to link itself. Obviously the Torah is linking itself to another event. What is the other event the Torah is linking itself to? So the Mayor B'Shemesh says something very interesting. He says that, you know, we have this principle in Torah that when the Jewish people go into exile, God goes into exile with them. Now, this in in and of itself deserves some attention because on the one hand, uh, it's very inspiring and it's very encouraging. The idea, that, the idea that wherever you are, wherever you are, God is, is going down there with you, is going down there to be with you. Now, that's great, except we've got another concept, which is that God is everywhere. So, isn't it obvious that God is going down there with you? You know, so, so you see something really fascinating, which is that, I think it's impossible to overstate our ability to feel abandoned in life. We can understand intellectually that God is everywhere, and yet as soon as a hard time set in, it's human nature for us to feel as though we're all alone. In fact, the Sloan Marebi points out something, which is that in the, in, the, in the portion of the Torah where it talks about Amalek, who's the arch-enemy of the Jewish people, the arch-enemy of humanity. The one who says that there is no God, and, 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 or, 
actually doesn't deny the existence of God, interestingly, so much as wages war against God, which in itself is a, uh, a, a, a very sort of mind-boggling concept, um, and, and targets the Jewish people as the emissaries of God. Amalek, in the portion of the Torah where it says Amalek attacks us, it's talking about Amalek attacking the Jewish people as a whole, and yet it says, it uses the, the word lecha, which is singular. So, so we have a, a, an, odd, an odd presentation of the way Amalek wages its warfare against us. On the one hand, the passage is describing its attack against the Jewish people as a whole, and yet the way the Torah describes it very deliberately is it, it, it uses the singular, lecha, it's, it's, it's coming to fight you in particular. So the Sloan Marebi explains it like this. Do you know how Amalek wages war against us? By telling each individual that you're all alone. No one else is going through what you're going through. No one else has any concept of what you're going through. You know, there's something very interesting, and I think hopefully... If, if, if any of us have gone through hard times, and I think all of us have, hopefully we've, we've had this moment in our life too, where we found out that other people are going through the, the exact same thing, and that somehow when you, you know, usually this phrase is said with a very ironic kind of like edge to it, but there's a healing aspect to it too. Misery loves company. Right? Somehow, usually it's said more with a, 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 a Scheidenfreund kind of way, which is that, you know, you sort of like relish the other person's failure. So, but there's a healing aspect to it too. Because you realize, you know something, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not this, 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 this fantastical loser. If, if so many other people are experiencing this, maybe this is just part of life. So there's something healing about it as well. So, Amalek wants us to think that, no, it's only us. It's only us. No one else understands. No one else knows. It's abnormal what we're going through. Okay. So, there's something healing about the fact that it's normal. But human nature tells us that whenever we experience some sort of downturn in our life, that somehow God has abandoned us. So, it's a very significant teaching to know that when we go into exile, that God is there right with us. So again, we're on the topic of this first letter of the book of, the book of names, the book of Exodus. Ve'eleh. What is that vav linking itself to? So, the mayor of Hashemesh says the following. When God came to Jacob and told Jacob that he's got to go down into Egypt. This is when uh, he's discovered that Yosef is alive, and Yosef has said, everyone should come down, because if you stay where you are, you're all going to starve to death. Remember, Yosef had all the food. So he says, come down, everyone's life is going to get saved, even you, Yaakov, you come down also. So Yaakov comes down too. But Yaakov is frightened. He doesn't know. Should I come down? I'm, I'm, I'm coming down into Egypt. Remember, among the Abos, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, leaving Eretz Yisrael was, 
was always like a, a very dicey thing. Should we do it? Should we not do it? Because this is our land. Are we supposed to leave? Or are we not supposed to leave? As you know, Abraham goes down into Egypt and he returns back. But Yitzchak wants to go down to Egypt to get food. And he's told, no, you're not allowed to leave the land. So Yaakov is left. He's come back. Should he go again? It's very unclear to him. And God gives him the, 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 this consolation. He says, go down into Egypt and when you descend down into Egypt, I'm going to descend down there with you. So now, you know, usually when you have th- this vav linking two things, usually it's linking two things that are right next to each other. Okay, you have something and then above and then something else. Okay, so there's an immediate, there's an immediate connection between the two concepts. What's so interesting about what the mayor of Hashemish is saying right here is that, that, that happening, that God is going to go down to Egypt with Yaakov, it's quite a while back. You know, it's like probably a, a hundred or more sukkim back from this vav, beginning, beginning, beginning the book of exile, the book of names, Shmos, right? But no, he says... Just like, what is this love now? Now we can get to the answer. Just like God promised to go down into Egypt with Jacob, so God is promising us that when we go down into exile, enslavement, the actual enslavement of Egypt, which is even even a lower category of exile, that God is going to be down there with us too. And again, we have to be told this. Because when you're getting whipped to death, you wonder, where's God? You know, I said at one time, a while back, something amazing about the Torah and the way the different mitzvahs work. Do you know that See, I'll tell you the concept. You know, we talk about falling off the wagon. You know? That means, uh, in, in, in modern parlance, you, uh, you resolve to do something, let's say never to drink or whatever it is. You resolve to do something, and then you drink, God forbid, right? So we call that falling off the wagon. But you know, in Torah, there's no concept of falling off the wagon. Because if you fall off one wagon, you fall onto another wagon. Because God is everywhere. You can't fall off the wagon. There's certain, there's certain mitzvahs, believe it or not. You see, if you walked up to someone and you said, okay, there's 613 mitzvahs, so what's the perf- who is the perfectly righteous person? They'll say, well, if there's 613 mitzvahs, I guess someone who's keeping 613 mitzvahs. Right? First of all, you should know, just as a side note, that it's impossible to keep 613 mitzvahs. That's even if we're in Israel, even with a base of Migdash, even with a holy temple, and even with a Sanhedrin and a king. Why can't a person keep 613 mitzvahs if the conditions are ideal? Because some mitzvahs are for men, some mitzvahs are for women, some mitzvahs are for kahanim, the priestly class, some mitzvahs are for the king. So no one person can keep all of them because all of them don't apply equally to each person. 
So that in itself is an interesting thing, which means you must have unity in the community. Wow, that's, I feel like a, a preacher. <laughs> that's worthy of Jesse Jackson right there. Um, <laughs> in, order, in, order, in order to get the full keeping of the Torah, there must be that, that, that level of oneness. Okay, but here's the point that I really want to make which is that among the mitzvahs that there are, there are certain mitzvahs that can only be kept if you've broken another mitzvah. So, for instance, I think the classic example in the, in the Talmud is, or one classic example, is by the Korban Pesach, you were supposed to eat the entire thing that night. Right? You're supposed to roast it, and then you and your, your group supposed to finish the whole thing. Then there's another mitzvah, which says, so you're commanded to finish the whole thing. Then there's another mitzvah. If you don't finish it, <laughs> then you're supposed to take the leftovers and burn it. But wait a second. How do I keep the mitzvah, and it's one of the 613 mitzvahs, how do I keep the mitzvah of burning the leftover stuff unless I broke the mitzvah I'm not eating the entire thing. So you see, among the... I'll give you another example. The mitzvah of, of tshuva. Right? Of correcting whatever I did wrong. How do I keep that mitzvah unless I did something wrong? What about the mitzvah of paying back someone who I stole from? How do I keep that mitzvah unless I stole from someone? So this is not a recommendation to go out and steal so that you can keep the other mitzvah, Right? We're supposed to do our best to get it right the first time. Nonetheless, you see something amazing, which is that if you fall off one wagon, you fall onto another wagon. There will always be a mitzvah to address whatever situation you're in. But a person has to know that. It's true, God is everywhere. So, of course, He's with us in exile. And if we go from Egypt into slavery within Egypt, that's a lower exile within the exile, of course God is there also. But what's the critical thing? We have to know that God is there. So, so that's just one level of the letter above the first letter of the book. Now there's something else that, uh, that I also saw from the Mayor of Shemesh. The gematria of the first word, ve'ele, is, adds up to 42. Now, those of you who have been staying, following these talks, know that 42 has been like this hallmark number for us. And, and he says that it, it, it correlates with this 42-letter name of Hashem, which is this name of redemption. And, you know, in Gematria, 42 is Mem Bez. Mem is 40, Bez is 2. And you see that this name in Torah, this is already Kabbalah, and I'm not pretending to understand the, the, the depths of these thoughts, but let me just document just the tip of the iceberg, what, what, what I can follow anyway. The B'nai Yisoskar points out that Mem Bez is 
is really is really significant, um, or rather that you, you see it in, in other salvations. Here it's hinting out that you see it in the salvation from Egypt, since it's the very first word of the Parsha dealing, dealing with us leaving Egypt. So it's talking about already God at the very beginning of the chronicle of our enslavement and our exile is already revealing the aspect how he's going to save us from it. This 42-letter name of Hashem, which is being hinted at with this first word, Be'ela, which adds up to 42. The Bnei Yisoskar says, look at this. Look at, look at the prayers that we say for Purim and Hanukkah. Look at the first two words, okay? By Hanukkah we say, B'mei Matis Yahu. In the days of Matis Yahu, B'mei, base, B'mei Matis Yahu, Mem. That adds up to 42. That's what we just said. 2 and 40, 42. So when it's talking about the salvation from, from, from Han- uh, of Hanukkah, already this, 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 this mystical name of Hashem, which links itself to salvation and redemption, is already being hinted at right in the beginning of the Hanukkah prayer. What about the salvation of Purim? B'mei Mordechai. Right? Again, Be'ez Mem, B'mei Mordechai. Be'ez Mem, 42. Again, the beginning of the recollection of the salvation is already hinting at this name of Hashem which is saving us, which God uses to, to affect His salvation. Alright, now I want to transition for a moment and talk about salvation on a, more, on a more personal level. Being saved from trouble. You know? So, so I saw something interesting in, uh, in, a, in, in the Sefer of Reb Tzadik called Sitkis Hatzadik, and it's divided up into different paragraphs, and this is uh, paragraph Nun, paragraph 50. And, uh, and he says the following. He quotes a Pasuk in, uh, in uh, Yeshaya, Isaiah the prophet, and, and it says, it says, I am Hashem, in its time I will hasten, I will hasten it. Speaking about the redemption of the world. So, think about it. There's a built-in contradiction in this turn of phrase that the Talmud zeroes in on. In its time, I will hasten it. Well, in its time suggests that God is going to bring the, the, the great fixing of the world in a particular time. In its time. But then it says, I will hasten it. So, meaning that it will come earlier than the set time. Right, we talk about, we have a tradition that in the 6,000th year, God will bring the redemption, if He doesn't bring it sooner. So in other words, there's this concept of a set time. But then there's also a concept that if we merit it, that it will come sooner. I will hasten it. I will hasten it is Achishena. Okay? The Ita is in its time, the Achishena is I will hasten it. Okay, very good. So listen to what Reb Sadek says about us in our own personal lives based on this. He says, you know, if someone, if someone needs to be saved from, some, from something, right? There's something hard going on in the person's life. Something very hard going on. And he needs to be saved from that thing. That if the person merits, well, you know what, he'll, he'll, he'll pine for it, and he'll, he'll really need it, 
and everything like this, and then it will come in its time. Okay, he'll be saved from it if, if the person merits it. That's bi'ita. The, 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 the salvation will come in its time. But then he says there's, there's another level, which is... See, this, is, this other level that we're about to talk about is why we can never stop thanking God. We can never stop thanking God. And, and you'll hear the concept in a moment. He says, then there's a higher level of being saved from some, 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 some opposition, some, something that we need to be rescued from. That's when it comes to That means that before a person is even aware that they're in trouble, they get saved from that thing. If they merit You can be saved from something before you even realize that you were in trouble to begin with. And these type of salvations, if a person merits, they happen all the time. And, and you know, we allude to it in, in, in the prayer, the great prayer of thanks among the Jewish people. It's called Hallel. We say it on in the beginning of the month, we say it on, on holidays especially. And um, there's a particular line in it that, that the rabbis have sort of like asked about. It says, it says, Halu Hashem Kol Goyim, which says, Praise Hashem, all nations, meaning, meaning the non-Jewish world. So, 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 so the rabbis ask, well, why? Okay, I can understand. We, we've been saved from something, so we want to thank God. But why are we sort of like telling the other nations of the world to thank God for our salvation? You know? And so, I, I've forgotten the name of the great rabbi who said this, pardon me, but, but he said the following. He said, you know what it is? The other nations are often placing traps for us. And uh, he says, let me give you an example. Imagine there's a person who walks to shul a certain way every single day. And there's an enemy of his who wants to kill him. So he sees that he walks to shul every single day the same way. So what he does is he digs a pit along his path and he covers it with leaves. And he's going to walk right in it. And, and that will be the end of him. So it happens to be that day when the trap is set up, the person decides to walk a different way. <laughs> and he never knew what he escaped from. He never knew what he escaped from. So, you know what? That person who set the trap, he's the one who has to praise God. Because he knows the bad that he had in mind, and he saw that God stopped the bad. So again, again, we're not aware of all of the things, and we should continue to merit not being aware, because it means that we should continue to merit that we receive our salvation before we're in need of it. However, we have to thank God constantly, because how do we know today we weren't saved from something? You know, I got a flat tire this morning, and... uh, the rabbi that I learned with in the mornings said to me, you know, it's a good thing it didn't happen on the freeway. Hadn't even occurred to me <laughs> that, wow, you know. You know, one time I was walking with a friend, it just pops into my mind. I was walking with a friend, and we walked by the driveway of one of these strip malls, you know. And a car was pulling out of the strip mall, and the two of us were talking Torah as we were walking. 
and this car hit my leg. But it hit my leg like, uh, you know, like a, like a feather. I mean, it was probably going at, you know, a quarter of a mile an hour, whatever it is. I mean, it just tapped my leg. And i just tell you what I said to my friend the next step after it hit my leg. This is just kind of what came out of my mouth the next moment. I said to him, you know, I said it was decreed in heaven that I should get hit by a car today. But because we were talking Torah, it was this and something else instead of something else. So we don't know. We don't know. I mean, I often say, whenever I'm stuck in traffic, how do I, and, and I'm like, you know, uh, I'm stuck in traffic. How do I know that right now my life is not being saved? So, so these are real things, you know. You know, I was talking with someone. I was talking with someone yesterday, actually. And they said to me, they were learning this, uh, this book with these, you know, concepts about how we think about life. And they said, you know, I read this book years ago and it just, just seemed like whatever advice, this, that, the other thing, it kind of went in one year and it went out the other. And, and then years later, I decided to, it's called, this book, by the way, it's called The Gateway to Happiness. And it's got advice about happiness culled from different uh, great books, uh, of different Torah books by uh, Rabbi Zelig Pliskin. And they said, you know something, just recently, years later, I started going through it again, but with a friend, going phrase by phrase through it. And the book is in English, by the way, so anyone can pick it up. Phrase by phrase, I started going through it, and I realized, wow, there's so much, there's so much here. There's so much here. Um, I want to tell you the more radical concept in this in this in Sitkis Hatzadik that Reb Sadika Kohn says. Because this is something that I think we all have to think about. And uh, it's a very challenging thought. When I first saw it, I was like a little bit shocked by it. But I think that it's, it's, it's definitely worth giving over. And it's something that you have to think through on your own. I'll do my best just to introduce the concept. So just to review, he says that if a person merits, he might go through some sort of trauma. He doesn't use the word trauma, but he'll go through some sort of hardship, and then he'll get his salvation. That's if he merits. If he really merits, he'll get the, he'll get the salvation before he's even aware that he's in need of it. Now, you ready for the next level? Listen to this now. And if he never receives the salvation, he may not have ever needed it at all. Now, let's think about that and apply that to our own lives, because that's heavy-duty. That's a very heavy-duty statement, okay? That means a person can walk around with, with certain dreams, certain, certain things that they understand for themselves to be necessities, and never see those things answered. And that the reason is... Not chaz v'shalom, not God forbid because they've been abandoned, but because they may never have needed that salvation to begin with. Because that particular desire that the person had wasn't essential 
for completing their task in this world. Now, now that's, that's heavy duty. That's, that's a heavy duty thought. Because, on the one hand, we have to dream. And we have to desire. And we have to want. On the other hand, sometimes, in some cases, in some cases, we link our identities to certain dreams and to certain needs, and that linkage is a false linkage. And we live in emotional and spiritual deprivation because we've linked a desire that isn't absolutely necessary for us. Okay, so then, how do you determine? Well, maybe I'm doing that right now in my own life. How do I know? Well, a person can't make any radical decisions just based on what I just said. They, they really have to work through something like that. Because, you know, a dream is something that's held very tightly and dearly to a person and gets mixed up with a person's notion of self and self-esteem and everything like that. So, this is a very, is a very you know, delicate process in terms of examining. And I'm not talking about, right now meeting one's soulmate or something like that. There's certain, there's certain things that you, you say, okay, well, I'll never meet my soulmate, so that's, that's what it is. I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about things that are sort of more, more extrinsic, more, more outside of the... You know, you say, well, I, I, I dreamt of eating this week. <laughs> Maybe I don't have to dream. Maybe I don't have to eat this week. I'm not talking about those type of basic necessities. I'm talking about things that are, you know, a little bit more removed from that. Oftentimes, dealing with career, for instance, and things like that. So, how does a person make those distinctions? Well, I think, I think that, that one thing that a person ought to do, and this is just me talking, and as I say, you can take it or leave it. One mark is, if someone wants a particular thing and hasn't gotten it for a period of time, and he's given it a shot, and it's been a period of time, and it hasn't happened yet, they shouldn't put their life on hold until they get that thing. That's at the very least. That's at the very least. They should continue with their life. That doesn't mean they should abandon that dream. But they shouldn't hold their life and their life's progress and their finances hostage to that thing. That's one thing I would say on that matter. But it's worth thinking about. This idea that, you know, maybe the person never needed to be saved from it to begin with. Very interesting thing. Because their mission, completing their mission in life, getting this thing, they didn't have to get that thing in order to complete what they're in this world to do. Okay. So, speaking of which, we said that this is the book of names. And, um, you know, we were talking yesterday about this a little bit, and I want to go into it more deeply in terms of a personal, on a personal level. But let me just introduce the thought, which is that I'd like to tell you my own understanding of why this is called the book of names, as opposed to Exodus. You see, we got this interesting duality. 
On the one hand, we're going into Egypt and we're becoming enslaved. On the other hand, we're also finding out that we're free. We're also getting saved. And like we say, the, the very first word of this, of, of, of this book is the Gematria 42, which is this agency, this name of God through which He's already saving us at the very beginning of our enslavement. So we've got, again, this, this duality, enslavement and redemption going on at the same time, and we're calling it the Book of Names. So I'd like to say the following. Perhaps we call it the Book of Names because how you name something in your own life, how you define something in your own life, can be the difference between enslavement and redemption. How are you defining the word rich, for instance? How are you defining the word God? How are you defining the word happiness? How are you defining the word strength? The definition that you give to these terms will define the life that you're going to live because it will, it will define your goals and it will clarify your goals. I had a friend, I have a friend, who was sort of in this uh, kind of slow motion process toward keeping Shabbos and, and everything like this. And he had some ups and downs on the way, but he got there. Thank God, he got there. Beautiful Yid. And he related to me a conversation that he had with Reb, uh, Reb Noach Weinberg, the, the founder in Rosh Hashiva Vesha Torah. And um, he said, he said that Reb Noach said to him, this was at the beginning of his journey, which was going to take twists and turns, he said to him, you know something? Make sure you define all the key words in your life. He says, define the key words in your life. And he says, that, that, that will be a guard for you. That will, be, that will help you get through life and get to the right place. You know, at the end of Shemona Esrei, there's a, there's a little section. That's the, Shemona Esrei is the, the sort of the, uh, you know, the Gomorrah calls Shemona Esrei tefillah, because it's sort of like the, that's sort of like the, the headquarters of, of prayer. And, uh, and um, that's the 18 benedictions that we say, the 18 prayers. Actually, it's 19 during the week. Um, at the very end of it, there's a little section where we, where we say a passage about our, our name. You'll see in, in this edition of the Art Scroll Sitter, it refers you to page 924. And there are certain psukim where you say, you say a, uh, a line from the Tanakh or from the book of Psalms, where the, the passage begins with the first letter of your name and ends with the, the last letter of your name. Now, why do we say that? And there's an interesting teaching, a mystical teaching, which says that at, at the, at, at, after 120, after we finish our time in this world, we go up to the next world and they ask us what our name is. Now, you would think that that would be the easiest thing to answer, you know, like, I'll ace that question, <laughs> you know, you know, it sort of reminds me of a funny story, I'll tell you real fast, uh, I took one, one class in college at the Harvard Divinity School, and, uh, and uh, I really, 
I hadn't, I hadn't uh, taken it very seriously, honestly. And it was clear to me that there were only certain questions. I would only pass the class if they, had, if they asked me certain questions. If they asked me other questions, I would fail it. But if they asked me certain questions, I would pass it. And uh, I got the exam. And um, I read over the questions. And I could answer every single one of the questions. And I, got, I was so happy that I just started thanking God at length. And I ran out of time. <laughs> So, anyway, we, we get this question at the end of our time here, and we think this is the easiest question. I would think this is the easiest question in the world. What's your name? For goodness sake, I can tell you what my name is. Apparently, this is a very hard question to answer in the next world. And that only the righteous are actually able to answer this question. Well, that's even stranger. I, why would... I mean, a person can be wicked and, and have a, be equally able to answer the question, what's your name, wouldn't you think? So we have two strange questions there. The first is, why are they asking your name? Why is that a hard question? And why are the righteous more able to answer it than the wicked? Okay, lots of questions there. So anyway, as a memory tool, believe it or not, as a memory tool, after every round of prayer, we say this, these passages which sort of have our name encoded in them. And you can look them up. It's kind of interesting just to see which passages describe or correlate with, 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 with which, which names, you know? And um, so the answer is like this. Uh, the answer is that your name is your mission. Your name is a blueprint, the DNA of what you're supposed to accomplish in this world. And in fact, when a parent gives a name, we're told that this is one of the last bastions of prophecy left in this world. That a parent is able to sort of, knowingly or unknowingly, consciously or unconsciously, read the soul of their child and be able to name it And so if you look into your name, there's a hint at what you have to accomplish in this world. And uh, so now now we can answer the question. It's those who have accomplished their name, their, 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 their role in this world, what they were supposed to do in this world. That would be the definition of a righteous person in the next world. And that's why that person, because they successfully accomplished what they needed to accomplish, that person knows their name. And that's why a wicked person doesn't know their name, because they went through this entire lifetime not knowing what they were supposed to do. And significantly, we end each round of prayer with a reminder of what our name is. In other words... After I finish praying, I should be a little further along the road, either with praying for my needs so that, so that I'm able to accomplish what I need to accomplish in this world, or, put another way, after a random round of prayer, I'm beseeching God a little bit more to know what I have to do in this world. Or maybe it's a combination. 
God, let me know what I have to do and help me accomplish what I have to do. So all of this is tied up with names. And um, so maybe we'll just end here. And, and we should all be blessed that, that we should make the right definitions in our life. And that we should avail ourselves of the resources of what, what the Torah is. The Torah is, the Torah is thousands of years of the, of the greatest people's distilled, distilled understanding through God of what this world is and, and, and what we need to do in this world. A lot of people, like, they get spiritual and, and, they, and they, they say, okay, now I'm going to try to figure it out. And they don't avail themselves of this treasure chest of our history of insights. They just say, okay, well, I'll just kind of, I'll go to the bestseller list. <laughs> I'll go to Barnes and Nobles and see, uh, see what I'm supposed to do in this world. And then, I'll, and then I'll add my own twist and that's what it's going to be. Well, that's one approach. <laughs> But why? Have you ever gone to a? Have you ever gone? You know, there was a bookstore in my neighborhood that it was. I've got a grocery store that that's the same way. Whatever I wanted in this bookstore, that's the, they didn't have that book. And I thought to myself, how could it be that it's a whole bookstore and they don't have like every single book I ever want? And I remember one time I thought, okay, I was going in for a book by Mark Twain. You know, it was, I think it was The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, so, or Tom Sawyer. I mean, it was a, I don't, you can't call yourself a bookstore and not have that book. They didn't have that book, you know? And then you walk into other libraries and it's like, oh my goodness, it's like awe-inspiring. There it is. Oh my, everything is there, you know? So, 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 so we, we have as our tradition that, that huge place. Let's go to that place. Let's go to that place. And, and I just want to end with one, one last thing, which is something that I, I really... God should help me and I should get this article out fast because I really want to write it up. This one word that I just want to throw out, which is this word, rich. Which um, the Torah... The Torah says a rich person is someone who's semeach bechelko, someone who's happy with what they have. By the way, that doesn't mean that a person shouldn't aspire for more, but they're happy with what they have. That's the definition of rich. And it blows my mind over and over again that there's no dollar amount put into that definition. That means a person can be flat broke and according to the Torah, be wealthy. It also means that a person can be a billionaire and be broke because they're not happy with what they have. Let's reclaim that word and be careful when we use the word rich around each other. And be careful that we don't use it unless we mean the Torah definition of it. Because the outside world uses that term, among other words, to enslave us. Not only that, 
But there's a turn of phrase that I really want to make a campaign and be on the lookout for this turn of phrase and gently point it out if anyone brings it up, which is the phrase, and I've heard good people use this phrase, oh, you know how much that guy is worth? He's worth $10 million. He's worth $10 million. He's worth the good that he does in this world. That's what he's worth. You don't define a person's worth by the amount of money that they have. He has $10 million. He's worth the good that he does in this world. So let's all be mindful of making sure that we're properly defining the key words which really will set the course for what we put our energies into. Because we're all trying to accomplish. So let's figure out in great detail and with wisdom what it is that we really want to accomplish. And let's avail ourselves of the treasure trove of Torah insights in order to reach that place. And most importantly, let's figure out what our names are and what our personal missions are and whether we have exactly what it is that we need. And it should all be for the good.